Well, good morning again. We're ready to start with our next presentation. And I hope that it will be uh, somewhat complementary to uh, what uh, Jeff presented uh, from a rather different perspective, sociological and, and historical. And I really enjoyed also the conversation that took place after that. He and I have talked about some of these things, about what counts as a consequence, uh, whether you can dispense with philosophical libertarian approaches or are they complementary to the approaches that he developed. And I thought that was a, a rich uh, discussion. I want to talk about state, government, and market. It's a little bit different from what I had done at some previous ones. I gave a seminar in uh, New Delhi on, on Wednesday for a group of policy analysts and economists and journalists. And they're very interested in the question of, well, if you say that you're somehow against the state, who provides the rules? And that's a very, very good question. And so I wanted to talk about the market, but also government and the state, and make some crucial clarifications. Now, these are pretty important. Uh, you uh, have heard in American political context uh, the claim that somehow the state is responsible for everything. And in a lot of moral philosophy and political theory, uh, people argue that even a 100% tax is perfectly just. You would have no grounds for complaint. Ronald Dworkin argued that, for example, a very famous uh, professor of law and the philosophy of law. Because everything is here because of the state. You have no claim on anything. And there are plenty of people who, in the academy, argue exactly this. Uh, an interesting person, Professor Cass Sunstein, has argued government is implicated in everything people own. If rich people have a great deal of money, it is because the government furnishes a system in which they're entitled to have and keep that money. And he also has argued there is no moral complaint against any level of taxation. It may be efficient or inefficient. But you have no right, no right whatsoever to anything. Everything you enjoy in life was given to you by the state, and you owe it to them. And if they take it back, they're just taking back what is theirs. That's a pretty uh, common perspective. So we should remember, if you consider yourself an entrepreneur, a wealth creator, uh, that in fact, you did, if you got a business, you didn't build that. Somebody else made that happen. Now this expression was such a clear statement of that philosophical perspective, and it had a big advantage. It really turned my niece into a radical libertarian uh, <laughs> because uh, raising three small children and building a business with 50 hour or 60 hour work weeks of pouring their labor into building up their business, everything about it that they built, and to be told you didn't build that, somebody else made that happen was annoying. Now in the particular context though, uh, we should remember, uh, he said it wasn't that you didn't build your business, somebody invested in roads and bridges to get to your business. You didn't build that. So just to be fair, to interpret him uh, as charitably as we can, 
he was saying it was all the infrastructure. You didn't build any of that. But I think that's also nonsense. They paid the taxes. They produced the wealth that was taken from them in taxes to use to hire laborers and contractors to build those roads. They did build those roads. Barack Obama did not. I've never seen him on a road crew. <laughs> so he did not build the roads, nor did he produce the wealth with which the roads were built. My niece did that. So uh, the perspective that somehow she wasn't responsible, that the state is responsible for everything. This is a very common view. It's not common among normal everyday folks who work and they understand they make some marginal contribution and that stuff wouldn't be there if they didn't do the work. But from the perspective of a great many academics, intellectuals, writers, and so on, you didn't build that. The state, this magical entity, did everything. So the presumption is that all of the surplus can be attributable to the state. It's a very robust and strong view. But it can't be right. It cannot be right. Anthony Desjardins, a very fine economist, and if you don't know his work, you can find him online, Desjardins, D-E-G-J-A-S-A-Y, originally from Hungary, uh, has demolished this. And his works are published by Liberty Fund. You can find them at libertyfund.org. He was professor at Oxford University for some years. He says, look, the state requires a surplus for it to exist. Soldiers and bureaucrats and administrators and kings and so on themselves do not directly produce any food or wealth. There has to be a sufficient surplus for even the state to exist. It cannot be true that the state is responsible for all surplus. It's illogical and impossible for that to be the case. There has to be a preceding surplus for there to be a state at all. So we can ask then the question, well, what is a state? And I want to go through a little bit of clarification from a, a sociological perspective. The canonical definition of a state from the uh, German sociologist Max Weber, I uh, was talking about modern states, not all political formations or forms of human organization in the past. That human community, which successfully, that's very important, lays claim to the monopoly of legitimate physical violence within a certain territory. So ISIS, now called the Islamic State, is trying to build a state. They may not yet have successfully laid claim to the monopoly of legitimate physical violence. But they are working very hard to do that in eliminating, beheading, murdering anyone in their way. A few months ago, they were a terrorist gang, and soon they may be a state. So we may be in the, I hope not, frankly, but we may be witnessing the birth of a new state in the Middle East. The other element there is the certain territory. And that is a characteristic of the modern state that distinguishes it from previous forms of political organization which were dynastic or tribal or had some other characteristic. But modern states are territorially delineated. They have fixed borders. And within that, 
the state is sovereign. It lays claim successfully to the monopoly of legitimate physical violence. So that's a sociological definition of the state that picks out a feature of modern political organization. And we can then ask, well, since we're talking about surpluses, why do people have wealth? And here, early libertarian sociologists, really among the founders of the discipline of sociology, uh, articulated that there are two ways to acquire wealth. Wealth is not the only thing that motivates people, but it's pretty important in life. There are other things as well, but wealth is a constant. There are two great parties, as Charles Comte put it, in one of the great libertarian magazines, Le Censeur European, which was uh, published in France, but in a different world where educated people throughout Europe read French. And so it was available in the bookstores in Amsterdam and Berlin and Moscow and Rome and Milan and London uh, and so on. Those who preferred to live from the produce of their labor or of their property, and that of those who preferred to live on the labor or property of others. So there's basically two ways to get stuff that you want. Franz Oppenheimer, uh, another sociologist, a German, uh, in his book, The State, it's a very, very good uh, short book, typical German. It's a minuscule extract from his great work, which is roughly the size of the telephone books of New York. Uh, Two fundamentally opposed means whereby man requiring sustenance is impelled to obtain the necessary means for satisfying his desires. Work and robbery. That's your two basic uh, options. And the state, he says, is the organization of the political means. He defined the economic means, production, work, exchange, investment. We can make a whole category of ways in which people produce wealth through voluntary interaction or stealing it. And we know that there are robbers out there, there are people who steal stuff from you. That's why we invest a great deal of money in keys, locks, fences, and so on to protect our stuff. So if you think about the investment, uh, we uh, not only call on government or the state to protect us, but we also do a lot to protect ourselves. When you go out to your car, you have a key you have the key that will open the door and start that car. No one else can do that. And those are actually quite expensive, as I discovered two years ago when I lost the key to my car. These are unbelievably expensive things. Who knew? But uh, these things are all electronic gizmos, and uh, do not lose the key to your car uh, because it costs a lot of money to replace it. And then the ignition is very expensive as well. You don't actually have to do that in a world without thieves. I once saw such a place in Switzerland. I was in a Swiss village, and people rode their motorcycles, motorbikes, into the village. They didn't have keys. They had an on and off button. That was really astonishing. They rode into the village, got off, went in and did various Swiss things, and then <laughs> went back, got on the motorbike, pushed the button, and drove off. I like that a lot. It told me there are no thieves in these Swiss villages. At some point in the past, presumably there were, and there was a Darwinian process of elimination <laughs> or acquiring of the culture of not stealing other people's stuff. But I wouldn't do this in San Diego or New York or, or Rome or, or other places. But Swiss villages, they save a lot of money because apparently there aren't any thieves there. And we know this in small towns in America also. 
People don't lock the doors to their houses. Do not do this in Washington, D.C. But in a lot of small towns, people just leave their house unlocked. And in Minnesota, during the winter, people will, in smaller towns, I'm not sure I'd do that in, in uh, Minneapolis, but smaller towns, they leave their car running with the keys in it when they go into the store. The reason is it is so unbelievably cold, it will not start again uh, if you turn it off. And they know no one's going to get in their car and drive away. There just aren't many thieves there. So we do lots of things to protect ourselves. He argued there are lots of thieves around us, but the organized thievery he called the political means. And the state is the organization of theft. Now we can ask, though, so what kind of economic means has to precede the political means? As I mentioned, this claim that all surplus is the product of the state cannot be true. There must be a surplus to be able to sustain a state. So what kind of social order will produce that? Well, hunter-gatherer bands like the Kung Song here don't produce that. There's not enough surplus. They do not have states. Uh, this sort of group that does swiddening agriculture, they tend not to have states also. There's insufficient surplus. What you need for a state is settled agriculture that produces an agricultural surplus which hunter-gatherer bands do not produce, and then typically also pastoralism. And these are the things that we find in common in the formation of the states, the, the early history of states in our modern world. Typically, the interaction between these two groups, pastoralists, people with cows, goats, or horses, and settled agriculturalists, people who till the soil. One produces a surplus, the other tends to be mobile and warlike. And when those two groups come into contact, typically what we have seen is pastoralists conquering settled agriculturalists. And that's a conflict that goes back very far and it's left elements in, in modern life, how should I put it, uh, memories of this. The story of Genesis, the conflict between tillers of the ground and keepers of sheep. And notice, Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. These two groups had an inherent conflict between them. People with sheep who move around and people who are settled who are tilling the ground uh, are, came into conflict uh, repeatedly. And states emerge typically when nomads uh, conquered settled cultivators. Nomad is a term that's not uh, usually used correctly. It doesn't mean just people who wander aimlessly. A nomadic lifestyle. We, we might say it of some sort of hippie-ish person. He was very nomadic. He moved around all the time. It's not what it means. Typically, they have settled patterns that they move through uh, according to seasons. So obviously, in the winter, you go down the mountain into the valley. And then in the spring and summer, you go up, up the mountain for the pasture land. So nomads tend to have pretty uh, well-known uh, territories that they traverse. And there are still some nomadic people uh, in the world, not that many, partly because states have settled, have divided up territories and forbidden them from moving where they were accustomed to go. So people who used to travel across the northern expanse of the world, uh, the so-called Inuit or Eskimo peoples, 
have been confined within state areas. Uh, the Karelians and the um, Sami people in the very far north of Europe, across Norway, Sweden, Finland, and Russia, quite often in the 20th century, so for thousands of years they moved around, state borders were set up and they were, were corralled in. But there's still some nomadic peoples. Uh, in Kazakhstan, there are still some nomadic groups It's such a big country who do traverse annually from the different territories in which they live. When nomads uh, encounter cultivators, uh, they conquer them. They come and take their stuff. So there are just a few images relevant to this. Uh, that is an early scythe uh, made of hardened clay but used for cutting grain so people could harvest it. And then the emergence of the war chariot. That was an enormous military advantage that uh, mobile nomadic peoples had. It was originally a kind of a peasant cart hooked up to a uh, horse, and it gave a mobile position for an archer. So you could be on the back of this cart being dragged around, shoot the arrows, and then you could haul off with your um, horse. Now, this was then developed as a war device, and they became far more mobile. And again, think of it as uh, Rommel and um, Patton thought of it. It's like a tank. It's a shooting platform that's mobile. You can shoot and then get out if you need to. You can come up close and then quickly run away. The next step, this is a Sarmatian knight, was the develop of the stirrup, which allowed people to fight from horseback. Prior to that time, cavalry had often been mounted men who rode to battle, dismounted, and fought. Because if you're not fixed to the horse, it's very hard to fight when you're on it. You're going to fall off. But when they were able to develop a stirrup, they were not only highly mobile, which was the advantage of being on horseback, but they could actually fight from horseback. You could hurl a spear, or you could use a sword or an ax. And of course, it gives you more upper body striking power. So if someone's down here on the ground, this is the whole point of this kind of force, the ability to strike down is uh, uh, greatly increased. So these groups that uh, uh, were mobile, that had horses, had tremendous ability over settled agriculturalists. And you find in early literature that early kingships were established in such a way that their conquered people were considered as cattle. Just as their relationship to their cows, that's how they considered these people they had conquered. And quite often, a subject could not approach, approach a king and be higher than the king. King has to be higher. Remember, king is normally associated with being on a horse. So the subject has to crouch down or even approach on all fours with a tuft of grass in his mouth to symbolize that he's a cow. His status is like a cow there to serve the uh, conquerors. So we get these state formations. The modern state, in many ways, originates in Central Asia. There are other political formations in other parts of the world. Most of them become kind of evolutionary dead ends, if you will. 
but the states that have now come to cover the whole planet, most of them have their origins in Central Asia, these constant eruptions of nomadic peoples uh, bursting out and conquering the area. Now, the Middle East had an especially significant role uh, in this. Uh, I'll explain why this is important. Uh, this is the first place where settled agriculturalism generates large populations of people. And with that come a number of features. One, they have stuff you can take. And so nomadic people want to come in and take that. And you have groups of people sweeping out of Central Asia, conquering these Middle Eastern agriculturalists. Uh, but also other things came from this. I have this uh, image here. Uh, all modern cats are descended from, oops, where did I put that? Why did they disappear? These are modern uh, Middle Eastern wild cats. And all modern cats are descended from, these are my cats. Uh, so they are descended from uh, Middle Eastern wild cats. That is the time during which cats first domesticated human beings. Because we know human beings domesticated dogs, right? These were wolves that were, came close to the fire, or they wanted scraps, or they were taken as pups. And human beings clearly domesticated dogs. Cats domesticated humans. And the reason is, and they all emerge from the modern Middle East, where there are grain, large storehouses of grain, what do you expect to find? Mice. And the cats figured out, because they're very clever, that wherever those hairless monkey things are, there are mice. So if you hang around them, there'll be plenty of mice. And the humans who are smart enough to figure that out, human beings have co-evolved with dogs and cats. There has been a, an interchange. They've had a big impact on us as well. Human groups that learned how to live with dogs were better hunters and were more secure from predators. And human groups that learned how to live with cats had fewer mice and other pests that consumed their food. So there was a co-evolutionary process. And the fact that all modern species of domesticated cats are genetically related to Middle Eastern wild cats is a sign of how important that area between the two rivers, Mesopotamia, was for the evolution of human societies. Another way to think about the emergence of the state, Mansur Olson, the economist, a public choice economist, very, very deep and important figure, talked about the transition from roving bandits to stationary bandits. That is to say, bandits that move around and then they figure out they can settle down. So he put it, the leader of a roving bandit gang who finds only slim pickings is strong enough to take hold of a given territory and to keep other bandits out, he can monopolize crime in that area. He can become a stationary bandit. The general point being, if you come in, as pirates do, you loot, you steal, you get all the cool stuff, lots of fighting, burning, and destruction. You sail off with a shipload full of stuff. You have to come back next year. But there's less stuff next year because you burned everything. And you killed off a lot of the males who now are not able to produce as much stuff for you 
to steal. The anthropologist James C. Scott has also helped us to understand this state formation process. A really good book called The Art of Not Being Governed. And it's a little off-putting to some people. He has a kind of a lefty edge to him. He's a very serious scholar, in my opinion, and he's really advanced our knowledge of state formation. And what he focuses on is this area of upland Southeast Asia, which he studied very carefully for decades. This is an area that is very difficult for states to control. He's interested in these marginal territories. And one of the reasons I like this book so much, it totally changed my understanding of mountain people and marsh people. And here's just a, as a digression, explain why this book is important. People who live in the hills, hillbillies, right? That very term is an insult, and people understand it. It's, people have a bad impression of mountain people. That's true everywhere in the world, not just Appalachia. They're hicks, they're backward, primitive. And similarly, people who live in marsh areas. Anthropologists for years have thought, if we go study these people, we'll see how primitive man lived. They're a living museum. We can go look at them and figure out life before civilization. That's how it was. And Scott says this is completely wrong. These people who live in these upland areas are not unaware of what governments are. They know what governments are, or states. I should be very careful because I'm going to distinguish it from government in a moment. They know what states are. They are refugees from states. They are the people who got away. And they have evolved mechanisms that make them hard to conquer. I wish the US government key officials had read this book before going to Afghanistan. The Afghan people in the mountain areas have never been conquered by anyone. They don't like outsiders telling them how to do things. Even though many times we might find what they do quite terrible, they don't like other people coming and forcing them to do it differently. Their social structures, their religious beliefs, their family structure have evolved to make them hard to conquer. Even their systems of agriculture make them hard to conquer. So they're the people who ran away. And even in the United States, think about Appalachia, hillbillies associated with what? Moonshine, illegal alcohol, all kinds of illegal behavior found in those areas. And he points out that he says there's a friction of power. Power flows through the valleys as conquering armies come through. And power does not go uphill very easily. People run away into the mountains. And then he says, if you study these groups, ethnographers do this, you find layers of different ethnicities. So if you look at these complicated demographic maps of the Balkans or the uh, Caucasus region or uh, upland Southeast Asia, they're very complicated. When you look at them, there are all these different groups, splotchy, just all over. It doesn't make any sense. And he's the first one to say, you're looking at the map wrong. 
When you look at it this way, you say this is chaotic. And look at old maps of the Balkans. There's Kutsovlaches and Serbs and all kinds of groups just all scattered throughout. It doesn't make any sense. He says, you're looking at it wrong. Take the map, don't look at it this way. Make it a topographical map and look at it this way. You tend to find the same ethnic groups at the same altitudes because they specialize in certain kinds of activities. So the Hmong people in upland Southeast Asia tend to be in the same altitude on different hills and mountains. And there are groups higher and groups lower. They specialize in cultivating certain crops that flourish at that level. And these are all waves of refugees of empires and kingdoms sweeping through uh, territories. Now what he also focuses on us on is dispensing with the naive view that some economists, not Jeffrey Myron, but some economists have advanced that government somehow maximizes gross domestic product or the, the, the wealth production in the nation. I don't know why they think this. Maybe they think that the, the president or the dictator or whoever gets a medal for having the most successful country. Uh, he says there's no reason to think that. Instead, they maximize what he calls the state accessible product. And native speakers of English will get the joke, SAP. Um, and he does so, if necessary, at the expense of the overall wealth of the realm and its subjects. Now, there are some kind of uh, dim uh, people who have discussed this issue who say, well, dictatorship is better than democracy because the dictator is like the owner of the country, and owners maximize the value of their stuff. That would be true only if there were a market in countries and dictators could sell the country then they'd want to maximize its value. But there is no market in countries, so this is a really dumb, unsophisticated idea. Mobutu Sese Siku, the dictator of Zaire, did not do anything to maximize the value of the country. He maximized his loot, his palaces in France, and all the wonderful things he had, and completely impoverished his country. We see this over and over again, and we just saw it recently in Ukraine. If you saw the look into President Yanukovych's homes, it was, these were temples of extremely expensive gangster kitsch. Uh, I mean, you, have not, you cannot imagine uh, the, uh, the, the heights of expense and the depths of taste combined <laughs> together uh, in those houses. The, and he did that by bankrupting the state, one in a procession of Ukrainian leaders who has done this, but he, he essentially broke it and caused the current crisis. Now, also what Scott points out is that the state influences the kind of productive work we do. They favor things that are easy to tax and they disfavor things that are hard to tax. And the example he gives is systematic state promotion of paddy rice cultivation in Asia or of grain cultivation in um, Europe and, and uh, the Mediterranean and North Africa. The reason being, swiddening, which is slash and burn agriculture, or growth of tubers, is very hard to tax. Because it's under the ground, it's a potato or a sweet potato, and when you're hungry, you go harvest it. 
whereas grain cultivation, whether it's rice or barley or wheat, there's a harvest time, which means a large group of men have to come together to do the harvesting and bring it in, which means the duke, king, warlord can show up and say, I want my share now, and take their 20% or 50% or whatever it is uh, that they're able to take. And so that the state has had a big impact on human diet, on human agriculture, and all kinds of activities. And we see this even today as states systematically try to snuff out certain kinds of financial activities, think Bitcoin, uh, that are difficult for them to tax. And they want to channel us into other areas of activity that's easier for them to tax and to get their share. So this has been going on for a very long time. The state leaders act to capture the state accessible product, not to maximize the gross domestic product of the population. Now, we have actually well-documented cases of state formation. And if you think about our state in America, it's a successor of a line of states. And we can start with the Norman state. It was founded in the, in the year 9-11. This is rather well-documented. A Danish pirate with the wonderfully Danish piratic name of Hrolfer uh, had been looting and coming in and stealing stuff. He laid siege to Paris. They had to pay him off. They'd pay him off, and then he'd say, thanks for the money, I'm back. <laughs> and finally, a deal was cut. They said, being Hrolfer the pirate is no doubt very cool. But perhaps you'd like to be Rolo, Duke of Normandy. And that sounded cool also. And the idea was, instead of coming in and looting and burning and taking what you can put in your ships and sail away with, you can stay there and you loot a little bit all year round. That's, that's the establishment of that system. Now, it's a criminal enterprise, but even from the perspective of the looted, I would contend it was an improvement. And that's something that it's a little bit difficult to swallow, but I think it's important to realize that instead of having pirates come by, rape, loot, behead, burn, and destroy, and steal stuff, you have a warlord ruling you. And that's better from the perspective of the looted and pillaged than these periodic lootings. So I was in Afghanistan a couple of years ago, and I was introduced to the governor of Balkh province in the north. He's basically a warlord. Um, and the local people who are libertarian-minded people, they're very sophisticated, smart people, they said, he's kind of a warlord, but he's the best warlord we've had. <laughs> and that's a good thing. He stopped fighting between different groups. Tajiks and Hazaras had been fighting, and brutal fighting. He said, cool it, bad news, don't do that anymore. Get along pay your taxes, and things got better. So in some sense, this is an improvement in human liberty, even though it's a, it's a difficult pill to swallow because these people are warlords and thieves. This state, the Norman state, it comes from the Northmen. These are the Northmen, or Norsemen, men from the north, and they were incredibly savage. 
So if you see images like this, look at this, this bold figure. These people were brutal savages who came down and brutalized, murdered, raped, skewered babies, famous stories of Vikings who were teased and ribbed by their colleagues because they would not kill the babies. <laughs> what a softy. <laughs> so these, these are very brutal people. And you know the, the prayer, God save us from the fury of the Norsemen. Right? So these are not nice people. Uh, Viking movies might make them appear wonderful and so on, but they were not nice people to have come and visit you. They establish a state and actually fairly quickly lose their Norse language and adopt the degenerate uh, Latin language, French, uh, of the area, Norman French. And then in 1066, William the Bastard, William the Conqueror through his admirers, sails over to England to lay claim to the English throne. And he conquers it and takes everything and divides up the land among the soldiers, the pirates, if you will, who came with him. And that is essentially the foundation of the modern English state from which the British state emerges, and then, of course, the American colonies and even our government. So there's a historical lineage back to that. And the common feature among these is war. Charles Tilley, the anthropologist and sociologist, really interesting uh, writer, is famous for saying war made the state and the state made war. If you do not understand the centrality of war and the formation of states, you're missing something very important. And that has persisted up to the modern day, by the way. Even the American government has been very much shaped by the experiences of the Civil War, World War I, World War II, and so on. Jeffrey mentioned uh, our healthcare system is very substantially influenced by World War II, by the idiocy of wage price controls, which were very harmful even to the attempt to win the war. They got around it by saying, well, we won't be raising your wages, because that would be illegal, and we would not do that. But we'll give you instead a free insurance policy. And the question was, was it taxable? And they said, well, it's not a wage. And we need to allow them to give that to, in effect, really raise wages to attract people to the war industries. So it's not taxable. And that has led us substantially into the mess that we're in right now. The distortions created in the medical system by the fact that insurance is provided as a non-taxed benefit. And therefore you have all these problems with third-party payers uh, and so on. So the war, war has had a big influence on state functions all the way up to the present time. And indeed, it's hard in our modern mentality, this is a topic of this new book that I, I've just finished up, to understand the importance of war in human history. Uh, it was once taken for granted. And this famous statement of Heraclitus of Ephesus, war is the father of all and the king of all. Some he shows as gods, others as men. Some he makes slaves, others free. Now that may seem very cryptic and mystical to us today. It's actually very direct in the context of the Greek society he was writing about, there was a key distinction between free men and slaves. The majority of the population were slaves, and he said it is war that makes this. Now, we might read this in some spiritual sense. That's not what he meant. Very direct. All around us we see slaves, 
That is the result of war. Our status as free persons, their status as slaves comes about from war. In other words, the central institution of his society emerged from war. And war was considered a constant feature of human life. It was even celebrated. One of the more loathsome figures of the 19th century, figure of the counter-enlightenment, a real enemy of libertarian thought, Joseph de Maistre, the habitual state of mankind, which is to say that human blood must flow without interruption somewhere or other on the globe, and that for every nature, nation, peace is only a respite. If you're interested in this thesis, there's a wonderful book showing this is wrong uh, by Steven Pinker of Harvard University of uh, Faculty of Psychology. It's a great book called The Better Angels of Our Nature. I really, really enjoyed this book. I read it to, twice very carefully. Uh, it's a systematic refutation of this thesis that human beings are able to overcome our propensity to violence and through moral norms through social institutions, among them property, freedom of trade, limited government. But he also talks about science and even such modern inventions as the novel. He argues that the spread of the novel made possible by wealth and the printing press brought about a change in human psychology. It allowed us to put ourselves into the lives of others and generate greater capacity for empathy. What if I were that person? The novel had a big influence on that, but the development of modern capitalism, if you will. But this notion that war was an inescapable feature of human life, it was taken for granted, understood that the state was an instrument and emerged from war. Now that is to say until the modern era, this is the first time in human history that there was something we could call an anti-war movement. Obviously, you find figures who speak out against war. Think about uh, religious figures. Uh, Jesus would be a fairly obvious one, uh, but many others as well. But in terms of organized movements, intellectual trend opposing war, that really waits until the modern era. And it is liberalism, or classical liberalism, or libertarianism, whatever term we want to use for it is the first anti-war movement in human history. It's a philosophy of peace and cooperation and promoted institutions that make peace possible and make conflict, if not impossible, less likely. <clears throat> and promoted also, which I'll talk about tomorrow, institutions to subject power to the rule of law, which is really uh, a very important part of the story of liberty. Now, let me switch a little bit and talk about the state the organization of the political means. What about government? In here, I'm going to stipulate a difference. These terms are used in different ways in different parts of the world. In America, people tend to say state and government. They use them interchangeably. The government did this. The state did that. And in fact, because of the federal system, sometimes people mean state to mean California or Oklahoma or Texas or Maine. In Britain, they make a distinction the state which is the institution of the state, with the queen as uh, the head of state, and government, which is a plural noun. The government are. That means the cabinet, the prime minister and the cabinet. The government are going to decide next week. So typical as we'd find in a British newspaper. Because they understand the government isn't one person, and it's not a unified entity, it's the cabinet. 
who make decisions about policy. Now, I remember many years ago, when I first started thinking about this, reading a writer named Albert J. Nock, who's a very interesting American literary figure, uh, not very well remembered today, but most important and uh, uh, interesting uh, figure, and libertarian from the 1920s, uh, teens, 20s, 30s, and then he died uh, before World War II ended, an extremely depressed man, by the way. His last book is called The Memoirs of a Superfluous Man, and he thought civilization had come to an end. Uh, and as you could imagine, in the, the depths of World War II, why he would think that. Nazism, fascism, uh, more benign but malicious nonetheless, the New Deal, American centralization, Soviet communism, Bolshevism, it looked like just he thought civilization was over. But he made a distinction between the state and government. And I thought at the time, that's silly. And it took me a long time to think about it. I think he was right. Government should be distinguished from the state. It's an institution. An institution in English is another ambiguous term or equivocal term. It can mean either an organization, the Cato Institute, the Roman Catholic Church, the Beth Hillel Synagogue. These are organizations. Or an, a practice the institution of marriage, the institution of property, and so on. So the term in English can mean either one. Uh, that create and enforce rules of behavior. So as organizations, we can think boards of directors, condominium associations, the boards of temples, the board of directors of the Cato Institute, and so on. Those are governance bodies. They produce the rules that govern the organizations. But they also produce rules that govern social interaction generally. Now, a common mistake among statists is to assume that the institution that produces the rules, the organization that produces the rules, has to be the same one that enforces them. And that's not true. You can have enforcement separate from production of the rules. And in fact, that's a common experience in law. It's very, very common that one organization produces the rules or produces a judgment, another one enforces it. The judicial branch, makes determinations, but judges don't go out and enforce them. They issue a piece of paper. The piece of paper can then be used by the police department, or if it's a civil case, I've discovered this when I was in a couple of civil cases, I initially thought, I won, woohoo! I get my money. This is not true, just so everyone knows that. You have to collect. But what you get is a determination which you or your lawyer will take to the bank, and it convinces the bank to transfer the money to you from the scoundrel's bank account or to transfer property. But the mere fact that you won the case does not mean you get the stuff. There has to be an enforcement mechanism, and much of that is private. The state does not enforce most of those cases. You have to go out and get someone to enforce it for you. But we need government to produce rules and then to help us to enforce them. Now, you can do that in a number of different ways. Historically, in Europe, we had the medieval communes, a very important form of government, helping people to live together in urban agglomerations. And the guilds, here are some of the, they're called Wappen, um, coats of arms, I guess is the English term, uh, of different uh, trades in cities throughout Europe. And the guilds were the ones who formed the urban government. 
These were entrepreneurs, business people, owners of stables and restaurants and pubs and uh, hat makers and so on. And so if you go to the city of London, Guild Hall, this fabulous building and so on, that was where the city of, of London was governed from. And the burghers, which I'll talk about that a bit more tom tomorrow, as uh, Henri Piren put it, they were homines patris, men of peace. These are places where we produce peace. Something can wait till the end or urgent point. Those who what? Interpret, Interpret the rules. Okay, uh, fair enough. Um, so this is one way in which governance was provided in Europe, were what were called the communes. These were associations, you could call them private voluntary associations, that formed urban government. They were highly voluntary, and it's very interesting that the legal systems that they established were not oriented towards punishment. If you see movies about the Middle Ages and people being burned alive and so on, this did not generally happen in the cities. In the cities, corporal punishment was extremely rare. Usually the strongest punishment was they kicked you out. They said, if you're a violent person, go live with the violent people. It was the kings, dukes, and princes who specialized in burning people alive and doing things of that sort. One of the reasons was, if you kill the guy, you get his estate, get to confiscate it. In the cities, these are business people, and they knew something really, really important. Burning your customers to death means you don't get the second sale. <laughs> and so businesses, tend, uh, cities were places of peace, and I'll also mention tomorrow, of freedom. And then mercantile law, this comes very much to the point that was just raised here. The Lex Mercatoria, the mercantile law, is a product of merchants, not of states. And it is the foundation of international commercial law today. You can find applicable all over the planet. This is produced by business people, not by rulers, not by kings or princes or dukies or parliaments. In many cases, as in the United States, these are ratified by state legislatures in the case of the Uniform Commercial Code. But it's not the legislatures who write it. They ratify it. It's drawn up by professional lawyers who are in touch with contemporary business practice. It's business practice that creates the law, not the legislature in this regard. So we have all sorts of law all around us. It's not produced by the state. It is produced by other groups of, of human beings organized together who produce rules. The definition of law that's common in uh, legal positivism and statist approaches is a command of a superior with the power to enforce obedience. That's from John Austin's canonical definition of law. It doesn't capture, in my opinion, what law does. Law facilitates exchange. Where's the command? in family law, contract law, property law. It's very difficult to understand how that explains law. Lon Fuller, who's a great uh, classical liberal professor at Harvard Law School, had a different approach. Law is the enterprise of subjecting human conduct to the governance of rules. Law is about rules, not about commands. And we need rules to live together. 
to be able to coordinate. And Bruno Leone, another great uh, legal theorist from Italy, he said it's individuals who make the law insofar as they make successful claims. When I make a claim against you and I'm successful at it, I have created a legal relationship with you. The law is made, and in particular, by contract. Contract generates law. Contracts are what make contract law. It's not contract law that makes contracts. It's the other way around. So we have all kinds of ways of generating government and rules. And then finally, market economy. No rules equals no market economy. Market economy rests on a set of rules. Property rules are obvious. If I could come and just beat you over the head and take your watch, there's no market there. I just hit you and stole your watch. It's when you own your watch and I come and say, nice watch, what would induce you to part with it? And you might say $600 or $1,000 or $50 or whatever, and we can negotiate on that. That's what makes a market. It's set up by rules. That's why the rule of law is so important. And it's something we know better now than we did even 30 years ago. And we know this because of the collapse of the Soviet Union and the understanding of the importance of the legal system for the emergence of a market economy. Just a digression, Milton Friedman. I remember in 19, 1990, I was involved in organizing one of the first libertarian conferences in the Soviet Union and uh, 1990, 1991 uh, with Cato Institute. I was living in Austria at the time. And uh, we held a, these conferences. Milton Friedman famously said, there are three things you must do. Privatize, privatize, and privatize. That's his memorable phrase and so on. Years later, before his death, he said, you know, I was, I was naive about that. Privatize into what? If you don't have a legal system. And the Soviet Union effectively did not have a legal system. They'd forgotten it all. I ran a conference in 1990 on legal education in Budapest with lawyers uh, from Western Europe, uh, Great Britain, uh, uh, Belgium, Germany, and it was about how to teach law. And I remember a British professor talking about contracts and putting in a clause for non-performance. What would you do if you contract for 100,000 forint to build a house and the contractor realizes his cost will be 120,000? What happens? Well, he doesn't want to build a house now. It's a 20,000 forint loss. And a couple of the Soviet professors say, so you make new contract. They say, well, that's not a contract then. You just make a new one. But it really revealed what had been lost. There was no, no law, no understanding of the legal system there. And then he explained, you anticipate that and put, write that into the contract. What happens if there'll be some money damages and so on. You don't want to live in a house someone didn't want to build. It's just a general <laughs> point. Um, <clears throat> it reminds you of these uh, bakers forced to bake a cake for a gay wedding, and my thought was, really, if you want a, if you want a wedding at your a cake at your wedding, why go to that person? It's not like it's the only baker. And the second thing is, you really want to eat that cake now? Uh, this person hates you. 
uh, I don't think you want to have that, that cake at your wedding. <laughs> but in any case, uh, you need rules, you need property. Ludwig von Mises, featured here, the market economy is a social system of the division of labor under private ownership of the means of production. And here's something rather important about it that distinguishes it from other kinds of social institutions. Everybody acts on his own behalf, but everybody's actions aim at the satisfaction of other people's needs as well as the satisfaction of his own. It proceeds through money calculation. It's a feature of a sophisticated market economy. There are money prices that are comparable. Mises really helped us to understand better the role of uh, uh, money prices and calculation. But there's one other thing that's really important to understand. The critics of markets say markets make you selfish. Markets depend on you being selfish. You hear this all the time, being ribbed and joked. Oh, you're selfish. If you believe in the market, you don't care about other people and so on. That's not right. But there is something distinctive about a market transaction. And Philip Wicksteed, uh, this economist, Wicksteed, rather, he was English, uh, came up with a term that didn't stick called non-tuism. But it's a very useful term among nerds because it captures what's going on. Tuism, tu means you. It means non-youism. When I go into the store, I'm not really concerned about the welfare of the seller. I want to get the best price for me. And the same on the part of the merchant. It's not that we're mean people. It's that's what makes a market. Mother Teresa would go into the market to buy blankets for people who were cold and suffering. She wanted the lowest price, not because she was a selfish person, but she wanted to buy the most blankets for those who were in need. She wasn't trying to enrich the merchant. She's trying to get the most blankets for the people who are suffering in the hospitals she established. She's not selfish, but she's entering the market not concerned about the well-being of the other person. If you have that condition, you can have exchange. There's a Chinese economist named Mao Yuxi, great economist. I was with him in Shanghai last, yeah, two weeks ago. Uh, and he has a wonderful essay, which I'll share with you. We're getting some books delivered with a chapter by him. He tells a Chinese story of the land of gentlemen, which is the land of basically NPR listeners who believe markets are wicked and bad and so on. And when you, enter, when you meet people, you should always act in the interest of the other person, never your own, so NPR land. And he, he describes this story, and the person walks into the store, and he says, um, how much is that? And the merchant says, it will cost you 20 renminbi. And, the, and the, the buyer says, for such a beautiful thing, only 20 renminbi? I offer you 60. And the merchant, trying to help the, the buyer, says, 60, you insult me, sir. It's worthless. I will not take more than 10. <laughs> and he says, no, 100, no, 5. <laughs> the consequence is they could never come to a mutually satisfactory arrangement, right? And, and as he describes, drawing on this famous Chinese story, they just fight all the time. <laughs> but in a market, when I say, that's nice, what do you want for it? He says, 30 renminbi, I say, hmm, uh, I don't know, nah, 
And he says, well, we could talk, right? Then we can come to an agreement. I try for the lowest price, the merchant tries for the highest. We can reach an agreement. Now, maybe not. Maybe the reservation price is higher than I'm willing to pay. Then there's no deal. It's not mutually beneficial. But we can come to a mutually beneficial agreement, and we can't if I go into the market trying to benefit the seller, and the seller goes into the market trying to benefit the buyer. So that's markets. But they require a set of rules, which can be produced by the state or by other institutions of government. government. So markets require rules and mechanisms for enforcement, and states can provide those. But they're not the only source of them, and it's worth discussing whether we can have other legal ordering mechanisms other than the state. But states can also violate the rules, and when they get out of control, they are the most destructive force the human race has ever seen. So they can do good if they produce rules, but they can also do enormous harm and uh, bring a, the concentration of human violence uh, greater than any that has ever been known before. Now, the significance of rules to order is also very important here. And the Chinese have a nice way of putting this. So a couple people here may be able to read this and uh, correct my bad pronunciation, but Wu Wei as a very important concept in China that explains very elegantly what the market economy is about. It's sometimes translated as inactivity, but my Chinese friends say, ooh, it's not right. It's active inactivity, which sounds puzzling. But the notion is, it is the role of the rulers or the founders of government to set the rules and step back. The rules are really important. You're active. But then you're inactive, let the order emerge. And Lao Tzu, the great sage, so long as I act only by inactivity, the people will of themselves become prosperous. This is Adam Smith's insight long, long before Adam Smith. He understood that. He's also famous for saying that ruling a great nation is like cooking a small fish. Typically sort of interesting, makes you think about it. If you're cooking a little fish and you poke at it all the time, it's ruined. Let it sit in the pan and cook, but don't interfere with it a lot. If you interfere with it, you're going to ruin it. Now let's go back, though, to the state and look at the way in which it has shaped the modern world. States try to monopolize law, but not fully successfully. There's lots of private law around there, but consistently the state tries to monopolize and displace of voluntary private law organizations. They try to replace customary law by imposed law. They claim sovereignty, that is to say that they are above the law. Uh, they typically try to create a nation. The myth is the nation creates the state. The reality is states create nations. If you look at the French nation, the time of the revolution, it's estimated about 50% of the population spoke French. And the French state systematically exterminated other languages, Occitan, Breton, uh, Provençal, uh, Catalan, and other languages were displaced. And French was imposed them for la grande nation, the big nation, the big country. And that's nation building is a product, is a process of the state, not the other way around. And then all kinds of systems of social controls, weights and measures, the metric system, which I hate, 
for example, because it's so hard to understand. Uh, compulsory schooling, passports, and now we are told these are natural features, inescapable features of life. I recall years ago, I uh, was asked a question at a college talk by a young woman uh, on these issues. She said, do you think the state should issue birth certificates? I thought, never thought about that. I said, well, I suppose those could be done by hospitals, churches, temples. So I'm going to say no in the absence of a reason why the state should do that. And then she looked at me and she reminded me of one of my cats because her ears seemed to flatten back on her head. <laughs> and she had me. She said, how would you know who you are? <laughs> wow. Even personal identity. She could not imagine having a personal identity without the state. As it turns out, I don't have a birth certificate, which, which made it very difficult for me to get a driver's license and a passport. I had to have six people come and say, that's him. Uh, down to a government office, because I don't, I don't have one. And uh, so by her lights, I just don't exist. Everything is uh, created by the state in this way. And as Jean Baudin put it, sovereignty is the notion that the state creates the law and the state is above the law. It is superior to the law. It cannot be governed by law. Very different perspective from what you're going to hear from Randy Barnett which is the idea that the, of a constitutional system in which the state is subject to the law. But this modern idea of sovereignty, the state is above the law, most high, absolute, and perpetual power over the citizens and subjects. And he dismissed customary law. He knew there was customary law, but he said, get rid of it. Why? He says, it acquires its force little by little and by the common consent of all. Law appears suddenly, gets its strength from one person who has the power of commanding all. So he dismissed customary law, which is a very useful way of organizing human behavior. And common law is a form of customary law. Helps to organize human behavior. No one sits down and writes it. For Hobbes, he wanted to get an absolute and indivisible sovereign state, the modern uh, sovereign state, very much tracing uh, back to this intellectual influence. And the idea was, the state is the source of law and therefore above the law. And we do hear echoes of this in the United States. What did our president say recently? I'm going to do it, so sue me. That really annoyed me. Because the suggestion was, I won't say it. <laughs> the suggestion was, I'm above the law. I'm going to do what I'm going to do. And again, I have a phone and I have a pen. Uh, but the Constitution was absent from that. And I won't, I'm not just going to pick on him. Uh, President Bush was reported to have said, probably by Andrew Card, so we don't have his words, that in White House meetings when Justice Department lawyers said, Mr. President, you can't do that. It's illegal. It's forbidden under the Constitution. He is reported to have said, why do you keep throwing the Constitution at me? It's just a piece of paper. So this is a, a bipartisan disregard for law. Now, lawyers distinguish between external sovereignty and internal. Internal is the idea of the state being above the law. External has to do with fixed borders and states not intervening from one to another. And that may be beneficial, but it helps to avoid wars. Because you have a pretty clear line, you say, you can't shoot your stuff over that line. So that can be quite useful at uh, limiting power. But internal sovereignty, I think, is inherently illiberal or anti-liberty. 
in contrast to the idea of the law-governed state, which Randy is going to be articulating, that the state must be subjected to the law. It is the institutionalization of rent-seeking. Uh, I'll talk about this a bit later. The state can impose small costs on large numbers of people and aggregate them into huge benefits for small numbers of people. That's why we get the modern redistributive state, is that logic of, of activity. Now, to wrap up, civilization has been, in a way, a process of replacing states by government, or approximating government more and less of the state, taming power. That's what I'll talk about tomorrow, that historical process. And I'll just leave you with this thought from another great libertarian sociologist, uh, Alexander Hustov, who escaped the Nazis and uh, was in Turkey for many years and meditated greatly on the question of what had gone wrong with civilization in the 20th century. A very deep book he wrote, uh, Freedom and Domination, which again, being a German, it's a 1,200-page book, short extract from his great work, uh, which is called Ortsbestimmung der Gegenwart, which is, again, it, the table would collapse if I put it on it. Uh, and he said that we have within us this original sin of conquest, of state formation. It's in all of us, and we have to actively exercise it. Get, not exercise, but exorcise. When people assume you can't travel without a passport, well, think about it. Why do we need a passport? The US government didn't issue them before 1913. For thousands of years, people didn't have passports. When I was in Soviet Union and Central Asia, I remember having a discussion about propiska. Propiska is a household compulsory registration system. In China, they call it huko system. It's evil. You have to be registered at an address, and you can't move anyplace else unless you get their permission. And the libertarian said, let's get rid of that. And people said, what? How, how, could, you, how could you not have a propiska? They said, well, they don't have a propiska in Canada. And people, you could just see their eyes bug out. They couldn't imagine it. So our challenge is trying to look at ourselves and say, how is it possible to live as free persons and not merely assume that all of these controls are necessary? With that, we have a little bit of time for discussion. Not much, but thank you very much for your attention. And then this afternoon, I'm going to be taking you through a few thousand years of history of liberty. Yes? Uh, you described the origins of mountain and marsh communities as arising from... The origins of... Mountain and marsh communities uh -huh. as arising from refugees from government. And you also described early cities as centers of freedom. I was hoping you could discuss a little bit more the interplay between those two and the roles that they've played. Um, European cities have a distinctive feature that they were substantially voluntary organizations, I want to say substantially, uh, of people who came together. I'll talk about this foundation of the city of Cologne uh, later on today. Um, and they formed what were called con conspiracies. Sounds like a funny term today. They would form a social contract and recite an oath to live together by the law, not to harm anyone, and to come to each other's defense. And so these are very robust social contracts. 
the areas of marshlands and so on typically are refugees. And state rulers, centralizers, have tried to exterminate them for thousands of years. And we've seen examples of this in recent history. Saddam Hussein's attack on the Marsh Arabs was a really terrible attempt to exterminate an ancient cultural life. The Marsh Arabs lived it in marshes, so these are wet, swampy places. And they were a source of resistance to his dictatorship. And his solution was to alter the ecosystem dramatically by diverting the rivers so that the water was not even used, it just evaporated in vast canals. No water would get to the marshes. They dried up and his soldiers could go in and massacre people. So that's an example of what we've seen in fairly recent history and there are lots of other examples of that. Think of those people as refugees who evolved social systems that allowed them to stay out from under the state. So, yes, sir. I keep thinking last night of your little uh, papers please monologue. Um, do you have a position on uh, voter ID uh, for purposes of, uh, of preventing uh, vote, voter fraud? Do you think it's effective? Do you think libertarian principles uh, permit this? I don't have a well-formulated view on that. I haven't really thought enough about it and become informed to have a view that's worth sharing. I don't like very much the idea of compulsory ID. If there were to be anything for which an ID would be required, it might be the exercise of a, of a state function. You have to prove you're a citizen, that you didn't just show up and you're not voting multiple times. Uh, but it's not a topic I've thought enough about to have a well-formulated Thank view. Thank you. Yes, sir. I, I thought your uh, comments were particularly good for today, which is the 100th anniversary of the beginning of the First World War, uh, which was obviously very devastating and uh, started by the Balkans, or started in the Balkans, one of these places that people were trying to exempt themselves from the state. I'm wondering, how, how do you think people today can try to opt out of the state, given that geographically we're a little constrained? Oh, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't describe Serbia as a place where people were opting out of the state, though that was a bit different. Uh, so there, there was a case of nationalism, and there was a well-developed Serbian state and the nationalistic movement against a dynastic state, which is what the Habsburg Empire was, multinational dynastic state, uh, fused together by an 80-year-old bureaucrat uh, who managed to keep this old state structure going for a long time, and it finally collapsed. Uh, but the question of how to uh, escape from state sovereignty, uh, it's an interesting question. I'll just make the following observation, so we can have one last question and then conclude. And that is that um, the approach to simply say we want to escape the state is not, in my opinion, one that is largely conducive to liberty. People want to escape into black markets and so on. Black markets are bad places. They're places where law and rule are, rules are not enforceable. What we should try to do is subject those things to law. That means limited government. So the attainment of limited government, in my opinion, is more important than trying to evade the state. What we want to do is to take the state and limit its powers, make it more law-like, more and, and uh, less coercive and predatory. But setting up systems that allow some of us to escape it may in some sense increase my freedom, but it doesn't generate a more free society. It, it tends to generate more corruption and arbitrary power. So on time, it's 12 o'clock, and I apologize. 
Will you just make a statement and then we'll, we'll meditate on it? Oh, I, this, um, I've had the misfortune of dealing with uh, some federal and state governments uh, going back over the last 10, 15 years. My lawyers say the, the, the term for this uh, government being above the law is sovereign immunity. Yes. A doctrine of sovereign immunity. Bingo. That's a very good point. You want to say something very quickly? You've got 18 seconds. Just quick question. There's a trite argument you hear against libertarianism. Uh, like, oh, you're so worried about state power, you want a weaker state, why don't you go live in Somalia? Or why don't you go live in what we would call in international relations a failed state or a weak state? Very good point. Uh, how, how would you respond? Very good. The absence of the state is not the same as the presence of liberty. And that, that's the thing we should remember. Lunch is right outside, and we'll start again promptly on time. Thank you.